Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast, where we have just been singing Jefferson Airplane to each other, but sure. it is what it is. Um, it is you ever the... feel like you've been given a pill that makes you larger or smaller, 10 feet tall? Crazy pills. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Yes. Well, all right. Let's begin at the beginning. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. You are Dr. Heather Hying. And, uh, and this guy is not a doctor at all. He is. Uh, that we know of. This is. That we know of. This is Tesla. Uh, named after the scientist, not the car. Thank you very much. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. For those only listening, he's a cat. He is a cat. He mm-hmm. identifies as a cat, identified as, you as know a what? cat he as does birth. It because identity is not a thing in non-humans. Is that right? I think so. Really? Yeah. I mean, maybe not. Maybe once you have theory of mind, you kind of got identity because if you can identify someone else, then you sort of have a sense of self. But I'm pretty sure cats, no sense of identity. Nope, nope. I actually think... You have, um, I I appreciate your conjecture. I oh, get okay. of, of what it is is made, but uh, tell me that this cat sometimes does not identify as not having been fed yet, even when he's been fed. That's a state of being. Uh, a, a te- this is the, this is the distinction between ser and a star in Spanish. That is a that is a different kind of identity. That is not a permanent identity. No, it. Mm. <laughs> All right, but are these other identities that you're complaining about in in human space aren't they aren't they temporary? Oh no, because you're right. Because the only people who are not allowed to transition are people who have transitioned. Right, it's temporary until you've done it once. Right, it's required until you've done it once. I think. Yep, and um, then there's no going back. No going back. Because right. once you've seen your true self, only the others can tell if you were actually right. Well, I apologize for doubting you. You you had it right. And I don't even remember what I was right about at this point. You were alleging, based on very little, uh-huh. that uh, his identity as not having been fed yet was mm. a temporary state and therefore not an identity in the human sense. Yes. 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 And, uh, yeah, if cats could be bored by conversations, he would be bored by this one. Right. Although I will say that we have now, we have done the right thing. Mm-hmm. We have... Um, established something important up front so no matter what else happens today we've we've made progress oh wow that's a really low bar <laughs> uh we're going to talk today about uh about project veritas's uh reveals this week around uh pfizer and broadly right that's that's sort of it broadly uh but first some top of the hour stuff sure. right we've got uh dark horse uh, uh, accounts channels no now at instagram facebook linkedin and on twitter uh which are are going to be the places to go if you are on any of those platforms to know if we're going to be live stream or if there's another guest episode coming out etc uh we follow these live streams with the live q a some people have already ans- asked questions for this week you can go to darkhorsesubmissions.com to ask questions we'll be doing that uh after this hour to two hours take a little break and then come right back here uh, in that break between, you could start reading Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. You could. If, if you wanted to. Uh, or uh, or Natural Selections, which is where I write weekly. This week I wrote, wrote about 15-minute cities, uh, about sort of the top-down attempts to uh, create something that seems more livable uh, and the problems with the top-down approach uh, to to. Uh, urban rejuvenation uh if you're watching on youtube know that we are also on on odyssey and that's where the chat is happening not that we can see it but that's where it's happening and we hear about it 
Sometimes uh, you can get some stuff that we think is cool uh, that was that came out of our heads and the fabulous artists we work with uh, rendered the drawings and now they're being sold at darkhorsestore.org. Uh, things like um, Pfizer, where the breakthroughs never stop. Yep, and lie to a tyrant. And lie to a tyrant. And finally, we are supported by you, our audience. Uh, so uh, we appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing the videos, sharing clips. Uh, you can find uh, clips on Dark Horse Podcast Clips channel, both on YouTube and Odyssey. And of course, uh, the audio is, for the main broadcast is available everywhere podcasts are broadcast. Podcasts are broadcast? Is that how you would say that? That is how I would start a poem about it. Okay, excellent. Uh, You can uh, join our wonderful Discord community at either of our Patreons. And tomorrow at my Patreon, we're doing our monthly private Q&A. You can uh, join us there. Join Brett's Patreon for access to... uh, one of his uh, monthly conversations, but uh, at at either of them, you get access to the Discord where um, you can engage in honest conversations on difficult topics by text, by voice, by video. They've got all sorts of, of meetups and conversations and topics, and it's really it's it's all it's all over the place in a really interesting way. And we encourage we encourage you to go there. Karaoke, and I'm imagining we can't be far from rap battles on important topics. That's mm. that's bound to happen. Really, I think so. Okay, well, um, you heard it here. I first. might be tempted to try that. You thought it here first. I thought it. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fair yeah. enough. And we have sponsors. Uh, we only uh, take sponsorship from companies that make products or services that we can either personally vouch for or we um, have someone who can personally vouch for them for us. Uh, in this case, uh, we or a dog we love can personally vouch for all of these products. So without further ado, here are three ads for this week. We've got Sundays. Our first sponsor this week. It's a fantastic, unique, dry dog food made with your dog's health in mind, not just convenience for the humans. Our dog, Maddie, who's snoring in the corner here, reports that Sundays is out of this world. When Sundays approached us about about being a sponsor, we were dubious because Maddie's a Labrador. Labs will eat basically anything, as anyone who's known a lab knows. What possible difference was she going to show an interest between our usual kibble, a widely available high-end brand, and Sundays? Well, we were wrong. Maddie loves the food that Sundays makes, seriously loves it, and is far better for her than the standard burnt kibble that comprises most dried dog food. Sundays is the first and only human-grade air-dried dog food. Combining the nutrition and taste of all natural human-grade foods with the ease of a zero-prep, ready-to-eat formula, Sundays is an amazing way to feed your dog, and in a perch, perch, in a pinch, a person too. Right, you had, you admitted the first time we read a Sunday's ad that you had in fact yeah, tasted it. Yeah, and I will tell you that it tastes far better than other dog food smells. That is okay. about as far as I can yeah. go, not having tasted the others. But uh, yeah, excellent. And you know, taste better than the other smells is actually um, kind of a high bar. Yeah, I think it's a. Vi- let's put it this way. Yeah. Um, You're smells... not saying it tastes better than you can imagine the other stuff tastes based on how it smells. You're saying it tastes better than the other stuff smells. That seems like a high bar to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Sundays is easy for humans, too. No fridge, no prep, no cleanup, no gross wet dog food. Smells. Quite right. Sundays is gently air-dried and ready to eat. No artificial binders, synthetic additives, or general garbage. Look at the label. You'll find none of that. All of Sunday's ingredients are easy to pronounce, except for quinoa, and healthy for dogs to eat. In a blind taste test, Sundays outperformed leading competitors 40 to 0. 
That sounds like a made up number, but here's the thing. When I have a bowl of Maddie's previous food ready for her, she's definitely enthusiastic. Again, she's a lab. Um, but when I have a bowl of Sundays ready for her, it's a whole different level of enthusiasm. She bounces and spins and leaps in anticipation. Do you want to make your dog happy with her diet and keep her healthy? Try Sundays. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Receive 35% off your first order. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash darkhorse or use code darkhorse at checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash darkhorse. Switch to Sundays and feel good about what you're feeding your dog. And if you grew up in the Southern California area in the... 70s, 80s, 90s, then it's Sundays, Sundays, Super Sundays, now in Fontana. I don't actually know what that was, but that is burned into all of our memories, is it not? It's not, it's not more used cars lots? No, I think it's like um, car, like parts you might buy to soup up a car, but I don't know. Mm. But it and was you don't in think Fontana. it's still happening? I have no idea. Yeah, so you just you stopped at the 90s, figuring you were safe there. I left. (laughs) (laughs) See? Yep. 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 And that wasn't on uh, Firestone Exit Southgate. No, that was that was was a car. car. No, that was new cars. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Off in the weeds. (laughs) Off on the weeds. Our second sponsor this week is Ned, a CBD company that stands out in a highly saturated CBD market. Ned was started by two friends who discovered that their hypermodern lives were leaving them feeling, quote, empty, bewildered, and disconnected. Something about this way of life just wasn't working, they say on their website. So they started Ned. You can buy CBD products in nearly every coffee shop or grocery store, but Ned's blends stand out. I'm particularly fond of their de-stress blend. Ned's de-stress blend is a one-to-one formula of CBD and CBG made from the world's purest full-spectrum hemp and also features a botanical infusion of ashwagandha, cardamom, and cinnamon. CBG and... You have something to say? <laughs> I, I think everyone who watches weekly knows that I've always wanted to go to ashwagandha, but go on. Yes, you have. Yep. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids. I'm not sure who it's who knows it as that, but... Let's just go go with it. CBG is known as the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is at combating anxiety and stress by inhibiting the reuptake of GABA, which is the neurotransmitter responsible for stress regulation. This combination leaves me feeling a bit easier with whatever comes my way, not because of all of the mother of all cannabinoids and stuff and such, but because um, I take it and uh, it's easier it's easier to get on with my focus and and the things I need to do in the day. Many of the CBD companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. Just like with low-quality alcohol, however, low-quality CBD can have undesired effects. Ned is USDA-certified organic. All of Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil is extracted from USDA-certified organic hemp plants grown by an independent farmer named Jonathan in Paonia, Colorado. I hope for Jonathan's sake, I hope for any other Jonathan's sake, that there's only one in Paonia, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Because this Jonathan, Farmer Jonathan in Paonia, Colorado, is a little bit famous at this point. Yes, I think the other Brett Weinstein on Twitter can attest to the problem. Yeah, poor guy. guy. Sorry, man. (laughs) He handles it well. He does. Uh, Also, Ned shares third-party lab reports and information about who farms their products and their extraction process on their site. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. They are chock full of premium CBD and a full spectrum of active cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and trichomes. Ned's full-spectrum hemp oil nourishes the body's endocannabinoid system to offer functional support for stress, sleep, inflammation, and balance. 
If you'd like to give Ned a try, Dark Horse listeners get 15% off Ned products with code DARKHORSE. Visit helloned.com slash darkhorse to get access. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D dot com slash darkhorse to get 15% off. We want to thank Ned for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. All right. I have an idea before I get to my, my ad here. Yes. Inflammation is obviously adaptive, but a lot of inflammation is in places that you don't want it or triggered by things that shouldn't be triggering it. That's misinflammation. Mm. See? Yeah. Yep. Well, I thought you were going to say that we're seeing a scourge of fatheads lately and you think that's <laughs> inflammation in the wrong place. Actually, now that you mentioned it, I think both apply. It's misinflammation. Yeah. We are having a pandemic of fatheads. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Okay. Our final sponsor <laughs> this week uh, is House of Macadamias for the macademic in exile within all of us. That's right, nuts. Um, That's nuts, right? That's nuts. Okay. That's nuts. Tree nuts, which include not just macadamias, but also pecans, walnuts, cashews, almonds, pistachios, and more, are delicious and nutritious. They are generally high in fat and low in carbohydrates, which is increasingly understood to be both satisfying and good for you. But each species of nut is different, and for many of us, macadamias are the best. Macadamia nuts take a very long time to grow, however, and are rare, representing only 1% of nuts in the marketplace. And because they are both rare and highly sought after, they have the dubious distinction of being the world's most expensive nut. But between the taste and health benefits, they're worth it. They have fewer carbohydrates than most other nuts, for instance, half of what cashews or pistachios have, or two-thirds of what almonds have, what makes them a perfect snack for uh, breaking a daily fast and controlling blood glucose. They're also uniquely rich in omega-7s, including especially palmitolic. Palmitolic acid. Yeah, I can't see. Yeah, I don't actually know what palmitolic acid is. Oh, palmitolic. Oh, yeah. That's a much better pronunciation. I well, I, I so I actually did some research into right. the macadamia nuts, and I this was the first time we read this ad, so it's a couple of weeks ago now. But um, yeah, there's there's actually growing amount of research into the remarkable health benefits, and I think it's uh, of yeah, palmitoleic palmitoleic acid, acid. It's an unsaturated fat that has been. Uh, Linked, linked to natural collagen production, fat loss, and heart health. See, I course. even footnoted the ad read. I love that you footnoted <laughs> the ad read. I've got references and everything. Refs yeah. and everything. Yeah, we really um, like these nuts. We do. Yeah. And House of Macadamia is a company obsessed with making this amazing food accessible to everyone. They have partnered with more than 90 farmers in Africa and now make one-of-a-kind vegan keto and paleo snacks. These include their dark chocolate-dipped macadamias, delicious assortment of bars made with 45% macadamia nuts, including salted caramel and chocolate coconut. Our favorites are the Simply Delicious Salted Macadamias with an ambient sea salt. (sighs) Namibian. Sorry. Damn. All right. Somehow I knew that was coming. Yes. (laughs) I had that in the buffer. You uh, you intuit my dyslexia (laughs) so that you can even see the errors I haven't yet made. That's amazing. That was weird. It was odd. Yeah. They are amazing, and we love them, and think that you will too. Our House of Academias highly recommends the House of Macadamias for all your macademic needs. Looking for something to nourish and energize you while in the pursuit of truth or the next summit? Go to www.houseofmacadamias.com and use the code DARKHORSE for a 20% discount on your first order. All right. All right. Did it. Did it. All right. (laughs) Um, all right. Well, we 
are going to talk about a number of things this week around Project Veritas and Pfizer and uh, what what all that means. We're not going to so for for we're not going to show the videos that were released because YouTube struck uh, Project Veritas's channel and removed the first video. Uh, but we will talk about it for those of you who don't yet know. But we're not going to start there. We're going to start with something that ends up feeling a little bit related, uh, but is uh, it, but we may feel orthogonal at first. After you. Yeah, orthogonal. Good one. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, that is a $7 word, if I recall is correctly. It? I is that with so. inflation or without? Uh, ooh, no, it's like a $40 word now. Thank you. Um, it's made with eggs. But, um, <laughs> all right. First thing we're going to start with. Uh, only pastured eggs for us from now on. Only pastured eggs for... Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the domestication of everything, including the food that the domesticated animals that we eat or that produce the food that we eat, eats, uh, is causing a health scourge. And that is not what we're talking about today. But I just thought, since you mentioned eggs, no, I would it's say good. that. In yeah. fact, I think we should just get all the asides done now. <laughs> Are there any other asides that we can see coming? That's not the way with asides, is I it? I guess it isn't. No. Yeah. All right. So later on, there may be a side of asides. Um, sure. We will have with the main course, which begins with Scott Adams. Cracker? <laughs> Me? You're not the first person to level that accusation, and no one's ever found anything to suggest that it's accurate. So <laughs> You are a white guy. It's spicy. Yeah. I have the prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't make me a cracker. Man, we're, I swear we're sober. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> um, all right, let's get, let's get serious. Yep, okay. let's do it. Scott Adams has uh, turned the world somewhat upside down with, at first, his acknowledgement that those of us who had resisted this uh, so-called vaccine campaign had actually turned out to be right, and that he had, in fact, been wrong. And that seemed like a uh, generous, forthright, proper admission of having changed his position. He then followed it up with a slew of, like, I don't know, it's like 60,000 tweets at this point that are confusing and seem to muddy the waters. And the gist of at least many of these follow-on tweets is that although he acknowledges that he got it wrong and that those of us who uh, resisted... Some other people didn't get it wrong. Some other people didn't get it wrong. His point is it was a coin flip. So you could either go with the official narrative, or you could resist the official narrative, and um, some people resisted, and they turned out to be right. But there was no method to figuring out what the truth was because the information stream is so polluted. One interpretation of which is, I didn't have a method, therefore no method can exist. Yes. And, you know, I must say... Scott is an interesting character, and I like a good deal of what he does. The way he prods people is, I think, quite useful often. And there is an aspect to this prodding that I think is positive, but there's also a weird feature of it where it seems to be that he is resistant to the idea that there might even be a method. And his basic point is, well, then teach it to me, right? Mm -hmm. And... The answer is, there is a method. It's not teachable that way. Right. Um, and go ahead. Well, I guess, you know, and as I said in the one response that I gave to him online, um, you know, it's, 
it can't be a static strategy, right? Like you can't, you can't, the, the teach it to me seems to be, if, it, if it's in good faith at all, which of course many people are convinced it's not, but seems, seems to imagine a, just tell me the thing and then I'll do that thing next time. Tell me the tell me the people, and I'll just do what they did next time. And you know, this is this is not the way complex systems works. And frankly, the thing I said to you was, I really would have expected that the that the genius mind behind Dilbert would understand that because the recognition of the gaming of office politics at every level would seem to be easily generalizable to like okay. Static strategies and uh, and you know people who come at you with patently easily falsifiable claims uh, don't aren't the things that you should be relying on, right? Like that that would that would seem to have been something I would have imagined that that would be something that would be in Scott Adams' head, given given Dilbert. It would be native to him, yeah. yeah. Okay, so a I will say I was gratified to see the number of people who said, "What about Brett and Heather? What about mm-hmm. Dark Horse?" Right, because frankly, people who are uh, longtime listeners have seen something that is not an easily described method, but it's clearly methodological in its own way, yeah. and they've also watched it be vindicated on issue after issue. So there is a question about you know if you take um, Scott's claim that this is coin flipping, it is not impossible that you could flip eight or ten heads in a row. But it is exceedingly unlikely. And I would also point out... We're in a Tom Stoppard play. Right. The Tom Stoppard... Uh, Rosencrantz and Rosencrantz and Gildenstern segment um, is quite the right uh, model because basically the playwright takes the liberty of writing an improbably long string of coin flips, which is then what the actors deliver. And the actors are therefore in a position to detect that they are in a play or something is off because it's so unlikely, but because it's no less likely than any other sequence. Um, you know, anyway, there's lots of philosophical uh, drilling down on that question to be done. Mm-hmm. But here's the, here's the thing. Scott, you have delivered a hypothesis. It is a perfectly valid hypothesis that everybody who got it right is guessing that they are simply choosing between binary alternatives and some people will be improbably lucky. However, Scott, that hypothesis makes a clear prediction, okay? If you take somebody who has had an improbably long sequence of correct guesses in your coin flip universe, they will, going forward, have no more success at being accurate than anyone else because there's nothing about having been right that predisposes you to be right in that coin flip universe. Ipso facto. If random, then random. Then random. Mm -hmm. If random, then random. Like it. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, exactly what it is. So, Scott, you've signed yourself up for that. Now, the... um, the issue then is if we are claiming that there is something that is not exactly a method, it is not something that we can, you know, let, let's take an example of what it means that it's not exactly a method, right? If, if you saw an amazing feat of archery, and there are indeed some mm. favorites of mine, I'm now forgetting the name of the, the fella who... Me too. Um, but anyway, yeah. there's some people who demonstrate some incredible archery skill, and, you know, you could, some of it could be faked a little bit, like, you know, throwing a bottle uh, top, no, not a bottle top, but a can flip top 
piece into the air and shooting an arrow through it. You could shoot a million arrows and then film the one that did it. But if the guy throws one up in the air, shoots it, throws another one up in the air and shoots it, that you can't. Without an edit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the point is, how many hundred million shots would you have to do in order to get lucky Mm -hmm. twice in a row like that? Mm -hmm. And there's actually a great channel. I forget what it is, but there's a channel of trick shots where, you know, somebody will set up a, you know, shot glasses sitting on a turntable and, you know, they're bouncing pennies off of something and it will go in and it's done. They obviously are using the method of shooting a million times, not a million, but that's an exaggeration, but they're shooting a huge number of times and they film the ones that work and then they cheer because, you know, they, mm. they're bored out of their minds trying to get these things to happen. And, and that's finally, archery as well? No, it's not archery. Oh. It's, it's a million different trick shots. It's, okay. it's pretty cool stuff. But Anyway, the, the point here is, if I say, oh, this person that does these amazing archery trick shots has a method, right? And you say, method? What is that method? Yeah, show me. Right. Well. Let me in on the method. Right. Let me in on the method so I can do those things. Well, no, it's not that kind of a method. Is there a method running inside the head of a fantastic archer who can do amazing things? Of course, right? Or uh, somebody who does trick shots in pool, whatever it might be. But the point is that method is not A, an explicit method necessarily, and B, it is not simple. It's a hard thing to learn. Well, and it's also very, it feels very precarious uh, if you're accustomed to the landscape in which certainty is necessary. It feels very precarious at first to learn. And, you know, we, we had this experience in our classrooms quarter after quarter, year after year, and, you know, and in grad school before that. But, you know, welcoming students into a classroom saying, we're going to learn how to think evolutionarily here. And um, very often, we're not going to know. And we're going we're gonna to sit there in the not knowing. And yes, that sounds, you know, philosophical and vaguely Buddhist or something, but, you know, it, it, it is. There, you know, there's a reason that many traditions converge on this. You know, actually, the uncertainty and the spending the time trying to figure out what the question is and, and not having come to a conclusion so that you can be open to the various sources of information that are coming at you is, is part of what is necessary. And you can't just hear that and say, oh, okay, I'll do that then. Because you can try, and you should try, and you will get better at it over time, but you won't be as good at it the first time you do that as you are the hundredth time. You just won't be. Yep. Um, So I thought what we should do is we should actually describe a few things that have gone into what you and I are doing that you could describe as methodological, Mm. and um, we could move on from there. But I think the first thing for somebody like Scott, who I assume is genuinely curious about how you would improve your chances in a garbage information landscape, right? And a couple of things that are relevant are, one, recognizing that the garbagey nature of the information is in some sense reliable because there are processes that have turned our truth-seeking mechanisms into uh, paradoxes, right? So basically the answer is a stuck field is easy to beat, right? A field that becomes overly concerned about uh, profitability or about reaching a conclusion that is politically uh, viable and understood to be uh, morally good, those fields are going to be hobbled in their own truth-seeking. And so the point is you're not beating 
right, a world full of experts who are doing their best and screwing it up. You're dealing a world through, uh, you're dealing with a world full of experts who are compromised by, you know, careerism, for example. You know careerism exists, as Heather points out, you're the Dilbert guy, right? Imagine that what goes on in offices goes on with fancier jargon and bigger, better equipment in laboratories, in universities, right? That's what's going on. You've got careerism, credentialism, uh, territoriality, all of these things compromise these fields. And if you don't have obligations to those structures, you are actually free to do something that they can't do. Um, so one thing... I, I, I'm just going to repeat that point, which is that many people outside of science, even if they can see the inanity which sometimes verges into insanity in their particular domain, be it office culture or entertainment or the law or government or whatever it is, somehow assume that what happens in science, often now people don't assume that what happens in academia is, is pure because, you know, that, that you know, the, 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 I don't even know what, like something's been torn off. Like we can all see this now, yeah. right? But people still imagine that, well, if you, if you call it science, the people who went into science must have done so for only the purest of reasons. Uh, there must only be the most honorable and upstanding moral players in science. And therefore, if it comes at you under the imprimatur of science, it, it must be sciency. And, you know, honestly, the last three years um, have been the, you know, repeated constant proof that that's not the case. But from within science, since the early 90s, uh, when we early mid '90s, when we started in grad school and even in undergrad, when we were you know, when we were working with some of the you know, best scientists in the world, uh, it was clear that um, science is no different, right? That there are there are you know brilliant players and there are ridiculous players and there are naive ones and non naive ones and you know the entire gamut of human experience is represented there as well as of course it would be, and. Uh, of course, you would if you are in the world and you see ah, what has replaced, frankly, religion as the thing that everyone looks up to and doesn't question. Oh, it's science. Well, all I have to do is get myself some glassware and a lab coat, and maybe I'll have to get that fancy degree. But then, then I am unquestionable. And so, you know, it's we've been doing this for decades. But in part, what we're what we've been doing is saying, to, you know, we've got lots of scientists in our audience, but for the people who don't think of themselves as scientists, saying not only can you, but you must, you know, question the stuff when it comes at you when it's dressed up as science, because of course that's going to be a thing that they do when they're not actually revealing science to you. Yeah, or another way to say it is questioning the science is how you do science, right? That, yes, that is the <laughs> that's thing. Much, right? much tighter. It's much. It's much tighter. But <laughs> yes. um, so anyway, I mean. At one level, you've got a system that if even from the outside, you can see it's riddled with perverse incentives, right? You can see that the way funding is done is going to result in people who play the game outcompeting people who uh, do the job exquisitely well but don't play the game, right? That's true, and it's true at a level you probably can't imagine if you've not been inside of a university setting. But all right, so you've got a bunch of fields that are uh, underperforming is a severe understatement. You've got a bunch yeah. of fields that have gotten themselves stuck in a ditch for no reason. And the question is, what can you do outside of those uh, fields? Now, um, you and I, first of all, there are just a bunch of things that belong on the table here. One of them is, how did we get it right? Well, we didn't get it right. That's not what happened. What happened was 
we started with our best understanding of what was taking place, which was clearly wrong in some ways, and we moved in the direction of getting righter and righter. Right? That's the way it's actually done. It's not a method for being right. There is no method for being right. There's a, there's a method for taking your understanding and upgrading it based on information. And I will say one of the most important features of this environment is figuring out how not to process everything. If you feel responsible for processing every fact relevant to a question that you are interested in, you will end up processing some facts that aren't facts, that are simply untrue. And if your point is, what we do in science is we reconcile all of the facts so that they fit together in a model, but a third of your facts aren't facts at all, they're the result of corruption or error or something like that, then your model will not work. It will, you know, and it's anti-scientific to say, well, but it's a fact, therefore it must work. Like, okay, you have you have to keep going back down the decision tree, the assumption tree, and saying which of the things that I know to be true aren't in fact true. That is that is how you reconcile irreconcilable facts. Yep. You, you you figure out which of them isn't in fact a fact. Which of them isn't in fact a fact? And there are you know there are, there are. I don't want to say tricks, but there are ways to spot them, right? So, for example, if your model is getting better and better, how would you know it's getting better and better? Because it gets more and more predictive. And then it stops doing that. Well, that suggests that you picked up something that you thought was a fact that wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ability to back your model off and say, when did it stop improving and what happened at mm -hmm. that place? And then looking at the thing that you picked up and you say, why, why did I think that that was one of the ones I could rely on? So anyway, it's it's things like and this. And what was the source of that? <clears throat> and do I have any other facts facts from that source? And how reliable are they? And so you know, you, it 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 it's many it's many tentacled in terms of like how you assess both you know starting with as few assumptions as possible, being absolutely sure of them at sort of like the the axiomatic level, and adding facts sometimes liberally, but if you do, being aware that. Uh, some of them may turn out to be something that you have to reverse and try not to build too much on the things that you haven't fully, fully vetted. Right. And and, and, and we don't, this last three years, we didn't, like, no one knew for, you know, in many moments, like, what landscape are we even in? What are we actually even trying to figure out? Yeah. Right? And uh, and the early days, as we talked about here on Dark Horse, like, you know, almost three years ago, like, oh, my God, it's the Wild West in a good way out there with regard to scientific publishing. All of those uh, preprint servers that were just churning out papers without the peers, you know, the peer review process, which is supposed to be this great thing, which actually become a scourge on science, without the peer review process getting in the way and the delays associated with it, suddenly there was all of this often really high-quality science available. Right, but the other thing about it was because it was happening so quickly that we were all driven to the preprint servers rather than the so-called peer-reviewed literature, what that meant was you didn't need to explain to anybody why you were, you were processing this paper and not that one. The expectation mm -hmm. is not that you were going to process the entire Can't. you know group of unpublished results. Some of them are garbage and won't make it, right? And they were coming out... I mean, like, just so, so fast. Right. Yeah. And so the point is, look, this is the problem. It is the selectivity, right, where you decide, hey, that result actually would make a lot of mm -hmm. sense. I think that one might be valid. Now I'm going to go look at the method and see whether it actually says what I think it says. And if it does say what I think it says, here are the cascading consequences of it logically. And then 
If mm. it turns out that result is bad, you have to have kept track of what you stacked on it so that yes. you remember to reverse those things. And there's there's something critical and slightly obscure in what you just said with regard to the selectivity, uh, that it is it is often considered a given that in literature review, uh, in a test and assessing, uh, you know what is known in a field before uh, perhaps you embark on testing a hypothesis of your own, that you do a thorough literature review, right? Like you're supposed to know everything that anyone has ever thought, at least if they've thought it and published it on a topic. And for some topics, and uh, under you know more slow-moving times, um, that is um, in in many ways an honorable approach. Although you know we used to in our classrooms um, argue that it might be better to go in, especially if you're an undergraduate doing a research project, go in without knowing what other people have thought, and then afterwards, after you have figured out, after you have designed your experiment and taken the data and analyzed it, and now know what you think you know, know what you think you found, then go and see what other people have thought. Like that's that actually helps you hone your own understanding of the universe better. But that aside. One thing that uh, is being gamed now is this uh, idea that you aren't really allowed to speak on a topic until you know everything there is to say about it. So this is how we get siloed. This is how specialists become the only people who are allowed to speak on a particular topic. But what do you do when, is it public health? Is it virology? Is it vaccinology? Is it immunology? Is it, in fact, evolutionary biology, which, of course, is at the, at the interface between all of those? Because evolutionary biology has a lot of specific parts to it. You know, there are phylogenetic systematists, for instance. And, and within that, there are cladists and there are, you know, maximum likelihoodists. Evolutionary biology writ large is the interface of all of these evolved complex systems coming together. And frankly, it gives you the bigger view down than if you are just narrowly going like, well, if it's not about viruses, I don't know anything about it. Right. So that, you know, that that is part of what it is to be thinking evolutionarily is to have the broader view. Yeah, that, that was one of the things uh, on my list of primary contributors is that, you know, almost everybody in almost every discipline is over specialized because competition, which is the thing that is being used to drive this forward, competition, which is unfortunately not so much about being right anymore. It's about publication and other proxies for being right, which turn out to be pretty bad. Um, but that competition has created an environment in which people become the experts on something so narrow that it doesn't apply to anything else. And that is a recipe for becoming a fool with an advanced degree. So evolutionary biology, as you said, is the generalist paradigm that allows you, without being a specialist, to understand how vaccinology and immunology uh, integrate how, and how epidemiology and vaccinology uh, and epidemiology integrate, for example. So in any case, you and I have a toolkit, right? It's not specialist in any of these domains, but it is capable of dealing with all of them. That was one of the things that we heavily leveraged. The other thing is central to what we said in our book about how you navigate novel problems, mm -hmm. right? What we say in the book about novel problems is we, we use the moniker campfire. Campfire is how human beings bootstrap solutions to problems they don't already have, and they do it by talking to each other. The idea is the campfire happens in the evening when you're not busy looking for roots and tubers or huntable animals. Navigating phone trees. Navigating. <laughs> I'd rather be hunting for roots and tubers, but 
that raises for me <laughs> the image of hunter-gatherers in the Serengeti and the occasional phone tree uh, from where they presumably get their phones. But um, anyway, we have digressed. Sorry. Um, but anyway, the point is evolution is a generalist uh, toolkit. It allows you to process these things. Campfire is the process of more than one individual pooling what they know, mm -hmm. pooling their different skill sets. Individuals don't tend to have the identical skill set. You and mm -hmm. I are both evolutionary biologists, but we take very different approaches to it. Mm -hmm. But the point is... And coming at each other and saying, oh, well, I think this. Like, I don't, I don't get it. What do, you, what do you think? Right. I think this. Oh. Oh, you think that? No, you still don't have it. Oh, I think this. Oh, I see what you think now. Here's why I think you're wrong. And, right. you know, and, you know do, doing that with... You know, with love, if you have it, or at least some affection and recognition that the person that you're talking to is another human being, as opposed to the way that argument and conversation, in quotes, tends to happen in, you know, on social media and in sort of cartoonish fashion these days, uh, which is, well, if you disagree, you must be evil. Or if you disagree, you must not be human. Right. Uh, and, you know, no. What we're doing by disagreeing, like that that's the love like th that is the sign that you actually care about the other person as opposed to saying oh i'm just uh, it's too much work i'm just not gonna i'm not gonna do it like that that's actually giving up and that's a sign of disrespect absolutely and i'll say two more things before we move down the road here a piece one is the ability to filter out stuff you don't want to process is essential or don't think that you should process because you have doubts about it even though it will result in you throwing out things that are true, right? The point is you want to bias in that direction. Including garbage in your model is much worse than failing to include something true or being delayed and waiting to include it, right? Yes, yes, yes. So yes. a preference more or less for type 2 error over type 1. Um, but the problem is an actor who is perversely incentivized and liberated to pick and choose what they process will, of course engaged in confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has written a book on a premise that is incorrect, right? That person is much harder to back off that premise because they now have a lot riding on it. It will be embarrassing and it's hard to unpublish a book. So, or, I mean, even even more so, built a career on. Same. Right? You know, the late stage, late, late career stage academics uh, who have, have built everything on something uh, very rarely say, you know what? Not so much. Right. There are, there are a couple of famous examples, which I, I'm forgetting at the moment, but it is, it is stunning when you see these sort of late, late career reversals uh, in which the person says, well, okay, you know, glad I know. And that, like, that maybe, maybe that too. Like, yeah. I've, been, I've been in other contexts recently, I've been reminded of this I'm glad I know revelation. Like, well, that sucked. Now, you know, now I saw how many people weren't courageous yep. or weren't telling the truth or that the thing that I believed and built all this other stuff on was wrong. Well, glad I know. Okay, sunk cost is sunk cost and let's move forward now. Yep. Yeah. And I will point out, you and I have a book out that is not yet available in softcover, right? That's mm -hmm. a pretty new book. Mm -hmm. um, we have acknowledged a couple things in it that we believe to be accurate when we wrote it that we have come to a different understanding in even that short period of time mm -hmm. so the point is that commitment to what's actually true so i'm thinking specifically of what we said about supplementation 
Uh, and well, yes, well, although I will, so let's let's just since since you brought it up, yep. right? Um, I stand by the idea that we we should prefer to get our our nutrients um, from our from our diet, or in the case of vitamin D, from the sun. Me too. Uh, but especially with regard to vitamin D, which is the one that we called out by name in the book, yep. um, the uh, the number of people living in high latitudes, um, mostly inside, mostly covered in clothes when they're outside, and actually live at a latitude above which, um, for some of the year, they literally cannot synthesize vitamin D from the sun. Uh, vitamin D supplementation seems um, to be you know quite quite the opposite of what we argued in, in the book, like an actual, um, a, a, a true good that actually enhances immune function and is contributing contributing to people's health. Right. Now, yeah. I will say that this is, again, a place where the model keeps getting more refined, right? Mm-hmm. There are caveats about this. There are apparently yes. multiple kinds of vult- vitamin D, and yes. so d- depending upon what you measure, you'll, you'll see different patterns. But uh, my current model, which I think you and I share, is sunlight is by far the best way to generate or to acquire vitamin D through this photosynthetic process. Um, And that supplementation, while it is important, is much less effective. It is much better for driving up levels in the blood to prevent vitamin D from being lost, right? So the um, deficiency... I think that was confusing the way you said it. I think supplementation is better for maintaining levels as opposed to for driving up levels. That's what I mean. So the basic point is... Um, make vitamin D while the sun shines, as we said, mm-hmm. and that means not just, hey, I'm out in the sun, I'm making vitamin D. Well, you're making vitamin D on your face and maybe your arms, but you're probably wearing long pants or whatever. So make as much so vitamin we're encouraging D. encouraging you to get naked. As close to it as you can <laughs> while your app or whatever you're using tells yeah. you the sun is high enough in the sky during a right part of the year that you can actually make vitamin D. and on then the right part of the planet. On the right, yeah. You've, you've got, these things have to align. The fact that the sun is shining isn't enough. Mm-hmm. But... Make as much vitamin D as you can so that you're not deficient and then dramatically slow the rate at which you lose the vitamin D and become deficient with supplementation, something mm-hmm. like that. So anyway, yeah. this is a, and you know, yeah. that model, I'm not telling you that's the final state. I'm telling okay. you that having refined the model three or four times, that's the current state. Yep. So, all right. We've so got, that was, you, you raised that as, you know, even our book, which just came out a year and a half ago, um, has some things in it that uh, we our, our positions have evolved. Right. right. Vitamin D being one. And I would say um, we said something absolutely unequivocal in the book about vaccines and the miraculous con- contribution they have made to human health, which I still believe, but I would certainly put a caveat in there now and say there are different vaccine technologies and that um, that there, the value of this technique has to now be re-investigated uh, with respect to is there a level of vaccination against too many pathogens simultaneously that causes it not to be good? Yeah. Is there a protocol that should be deployed in which you are told that you should avoid certain antigens within a certain period of time after you've been vaccinated? Are adjuvants just simply a dead end to begin with? Okay, but it, it's not a book about vaccines. Right. It's mostly not a book about health and medicine, right. although there's a chapter in there, two chapters on health and medicine. Uh, and what we say specifically is... The three great successes of Western medicine are surgery, antibiotics, and vaccines. And we also say all of them can be used in uh, times and contexts when they should not be used. 
we did not go into, um, I think I, I think we tell one story about um, the Cipro, um, the um, whatever that class of antibiotics is that's got a long phloxamine something, um, that probably contributed to my rupturing my Achilles tendon many years after we'd both yep. been on Cipro a lot. Um, so we do tell one specific antibiotic story, uh, but... Uh, it, you know, it's not it's not a book that explores all of the places where things have gotten right and things have gotten wrong. And unlike vitamin D, the information was out there and available, and we didn't have it. Whereas, uh, largely, what has happened since uh, you know since the book went out of our hands and we had no more ability to change it uh, has has been most of the reveal of what you know, like an update based on things that have happened since publication is different than an update based on actually. We kind of got this wrong, and we had the ability to know better. Which, and I think, I think this is two different situations. I agree. I think I think we're deep in the weeds. But the basic point was things like having built a career, having written a book, make it hard to update a model because you have now a uh, a risk of embarrassment, and a commitment to updating these models is essential. In fact, you probably shouldn't write the book if you can't update the model later if the book turns out to be <clears throat> in some way imprecise or inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> all right, so generalist toolkit, active discussion between people who don't feel the obligation to validate what the other person is saying but understand that uh, proper science is done when you push each other around and that that's not personal, mm-hmm. right? That's how we were both trained. That's how the cultures of the laboratories in which uh, we learned to think evolutionarily, that's how it went. Um, and, you know, that's that's how you learn the method. It's not the kind of thing, Scott, that you can, um, you know, see on a piece of paper and know it and not be wrong again. That's not going to work. Um, yeah, you can't. You can't do anything to guarantee that you'll never be wrong again unless you never make any claims again. Right. So, all right. Um, scientific method, generalist toolkit, campfire discussions, and don't expect to be right. Expect to get more right over time based on processing information that's actually uh, likely enough to be correct or close to correct that processing it makes you smarter rather than dumber. Um, so anyway, that's uh, we can maybe leave this there unless there's something you want to add to it. No, that's good. All right. I, I, I hope people figure this out, though, because it would be great. You know, there are some... Uh, oh, I guess one other thing I would add. There are people that we talk to when we're not talking to each other that contribute yeah, it does happen oh that's not what i'm saying yeah <laughs> when we do not happen to be in conversation with each other at that moment there are other people that we interact with um that's so true i'm not making this better you're not saying anything wrong it's just it's just funny it, it go on all right i'll try to be quiet there are people that one comes to trust based on the fact that they seem to be doing something parallel to what you and i are describing that we do here right? Figuring out who to pay attention to when somebody says, actually, this is a really interesting result, giving it an extra boost because that person tends to have a really good nose for results that turn out to be right and important, right? That's a very useful thing. Um, So I should probably point to a few of these people. Uh, Chris Martinson, right, has been just so Mm -hmm. spot on so many times. It's incredible if you don't follow chris you should follow him so we'll link his like youtube channel in the show notes yep 
I would say I have more recently become aware of Brett Swanson, whose Substack we have talked about, um, but he does some very good explorations of claims where people make a claim that something is, is uh, seen in the data, and he'll say, well, is it? So, for example, his Substack on the question of were 3 million people saved by the vaccine, the COVID vaccine campaign, was a slam dunk. Mm. Um uh, Jumi Kim does deep dives on uh, biological topics where she's very careful to um, uh, process them in a way that you can just see what the evidence actually for and against particular claims is. It's very uninflected with ideology or emotion. It's just here's what a highly competent person sees when they use their tools to explore a question. Uh, Alex Marinos uh, is has been excellent. He's not um, a biologist by training. Um, he does have an advanced degree, I guess, in computer science. But um, there's many, many, many more. But I, don't, I think listing right. every one is, is, is a mistake. Trying to be exhaustive is going to be unfair to the people we forget. That's certainly true. I'll, I'll just finish by saying that Alex has approached questions that impact us. Um, like, well, does ivermectin work, right? And he has explored those, and he's delved deep into these large-scale randomized controlled trials that are claimed to prove that it doesn't, and it's amazing what's in there. You mm -hmm. find fraud, um, and you find that actually in spite of the fraud, the pattern that it does work is present, and it's obscured by the way they wrote it up. Um, so it's an amazing thing. But figuring out who to listen to, who tends to have a good hit rate, is key. And um, I guess all of those people show their work, which is what we do. Right. All right. Yeah. So um, we're, we're going to segue now to talking about uh, Project Veritas's uh, revelations this week. Uh, for those uh, who are listening later in time when it's not so present, or if you have just not watched the video, uh, we'll link to the Rumble video um, but as I said at the top of the hour, uh, so Project Veritas is an organization started uh, 10, 15 years ago, something like this maybe, um, basically to do undercover investigative reporting. Um, and uh, they had someone apparently go on a date this week with a guy named Jordan Tristan Walker, who's an MD and the director, Worldwide R&D Strategic Operations and mRNA Scientific Planning at Pfizer. Uh, he's had that title since 2021, uh, Walker has. Um, and so the, the Project Veritas guy, who uh, is not seen on camera, you can hear him, uh, is pretending to be on a date with Walker and basically asking him open-ended and leading questions about what is happening uh, at, at Pfizer. So just a few more things about Walker before we do some, some quotes and talk about what we, what we think is going on here. Uh, Walker was a consultant at BCG, that's the Boston Consulting Group. Um, before uh, he was the worldwide R&D strategic operations and mRNA scientific planning director at Pfizer, uh, which is itself interesting. Uh, you know, he's, he's a consultant guy, uh, which is consistent with something he says in the second video that Project Veritas releases um, when he's uh, sort of gone into um, scared and trying to fix the problem he's just created for himself and for everyone mode. Um, 
And then he got his medical degree, it looks like, in, in 2018. So, you know, he does have a medical background, but it seems like mostly he's been doing consulting and sort of strategic planning for, for Pfizer. So, um, like I said, YouTube removed their video for a, guess what, violation of their community guidelines. We've been there um, without any more specificity, at least, that has been shared uh, with us publicly. Um, but the video is still up on Rumble. So uh, you basically have a... Uh, there must be a hidden camera in like the guy's glasses or something uh, showing uh, Walker, again, the, the, the consultant medical doctor at Pfizer, saying, for instance, quote, you know how the virus keeps mutating? One of the things we're exploring is why don't we just mutate it ourselves so we could preemptively develop new vaccines. So this would seem to imply that Pfizer would be mutating viruses and then releasing them into the world so that their newly developed vaccines would then be effective. But um, that seems even too far for Pfizer. Well, it, I have to say I was alarmed when I saw this interaction because what he says they are doing does not make sense. I'm not going to just share the rest of the quotes then yeah. before you respond. Why don't, okay. why don't you share the rest of the quotes? Okay. Um, as you can imagine, Walker continues, no one wants to be having a pharma company mutating fucking viruses. The anonymous state says, so Pfizer is ultimately thinking about mutating COVID? Walker, well, no. Well, that's not what we say to the public, no. It was a thought that came up in a meeting and we were like, why do we not? It was like, we're going to consider that with more discussions. Then Walker says a little later, the way it would work is we would put this virus in these monkeys and then we successfully cause them to keep infecting each other. And we collect, I'm actually going to gray out the extra words here to make it easier to hear what he's saying. And we collect samples from them. And then the ones that are more infectious, we'll put them in another monkey and then just constantly actively mutate it. So yeah. I don't know if you want to hear all the things. Like, well, let's, let's, let's stop there. Okay. This, is, this is the thing that threw me. Yeah. Okay. So that that is serial passaging is what he's talking about. He is talking about yeah. serial passaging in monkeys to make the virus more infectious. Now, this does not add up as stated. Yep. And so there's a question. This guy appears to be, we can debate how high level he is, but he does appear to be at the top of some sort of uh, directorate of mRNA. So, all right, he's involved in strategy, but he's deeply inside of Pfizer, mm -hmm. dealing with the mRNA technology, telling us that they are doing serial passaging with the virus. But it is not obvious why Pfizer would want to do that. So, I want to make the biology a little bit clear. Not only doesn't it isn't it clear why Pfizer would want to do that, it's not like. It's not clear why Pfizer would want that result, and it's and it's really not clear. I mean, it's actually clear that that approach to getting that result would not garner that result. Like well, that, the, the science is just wrong. Well, as right? stated, I think it's nonsense. It seems like to be nonsense. actual nonsense. Yeah. And the reason that I say that is, let's compare to what was done. We think in Wuhan. Okay. In Wuhan, you had a viral ancestor taken from a bat cave, probably a mine. Um, the viral ancestor 
we are extrapolating a little bit from a complex story some of you will know, but that viral ancestor was weakly capable of infecting humans, but not capable of jumping between them. That ancestor brought into the lab in Wuhan, we think, was then probably serially passaged through human airway tissue, that's cells, and in vitro human mm-hmm. airway tissue, humanized mice. These are mice that have been molecularly altered so that they f- function from the virus's perspective as a human background, uh, and ferrets. Those are the three likely candidates. Now, in that case, you're taking a bat-adapted virus and then you are exposing it to environments that will enhance its function relative to human infectivity. Just let's say also ferrets for reasons that I don't, must be interesting, and I don't know what the explanation is, are immunologically very similar to humans and actually more similar than most monkeys would be. It's not immunologically. It's the ACE2 receptor. Oh, it's just the ACE2 receptor. Right. And with regard to monkeys... Uh, do, are they all? I mean, he only says monkeys, and you know, it's a good they're question. presumably not looking at tamarins. But so for I don't, our purposes, right. it doesn't matter. Okay. Because the point is, you've got a virus that's not adapted to humans at all, and then you expose it to three selective environments that lead in the human direction: ferrets, because the ACE2 receptor, which this virus in particular utilizes, mm-hmm. um, is a match. Right. You've got human airway tissue, which is human, Mm -hmm. and you've got humanized mice, which have been made more human-like for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you take something that is remote that would need an intermediate host. Remember, we've never found the intermediate host in the wild that would explain how this virus got from bats to people, right? So what was the intermediate host? It was the laboratory with these three environments, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now the virus has spread around the world. Billions of people have been infected right? This is now a very well-adapted virus to people. If you take it to monkeys, it will evolve away from human adaptation. Maybe not very far, because maybe monkeys are close enough, but it's not positive from the point of view of enhancing its infectivity of humans. So it's like, it's like virulence or infectivity is a abstraction, and once infectious, you know, infectivity would apply equally to anything that you're talking about. It's like we, we know, and certainly the people who really know what's going on at Pfizer know this, that right. you, know, you know, infectious, high infectivity in a human does not mean high infectivity in a cockatoo. Right. Right. So you could produce maybe, in fact, I don't think it would work even, well, you could produce a variant right, or maybe a few variants through this experiment in a small number of monkeys. But those wouldn't be useful variants from the point of view of predicting what the virus is going to do in people, which is why he says they're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. They want to know what it's going to do beforehand so that they can get ahead on vaccines. But that won't happen from this experiment as he described it, which raises the question of what exactly is going on here? And I think there are really three broad possibilities. One is this guy's just shooting the shit on a date and he's making stuff up, maybe loosely based on something, but this is about the date and not about uh, biology, that it's nuts enough that it doesn't mean anything. Second possibility, which is what he basically what he claims in his incoherent way when he is, it is revealed that it wasn't a date, right? I'm right. a liar. Right. Right. So 
So we will come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second possibility is that um, there is a absolutely monstrous explanation for what he's talking about that we can infer from what he said, but I'll come back to that. The third possibility is that he's not really very good at the biology at all, and that he is reporting something real, but he doesn't get it enough to report it properly, and that something is missing from what he said. Well, and But also in that possibility is he was in a meeting. He was in several meetings, but he refers to a meeting that day, you know, the day of the date, uh, in which they were spitballing, right? That, you know, the, the Pfizer execs in the room with him were talking about what they might do, and... You know, he says it was a thought that came up in a meeting, and we were like, "Why do we not?" It was like, "Well, we're going to consider that with more discussions." That you know, that framing, and it's you know, we're we're so many levels deep here; it's really hard to know. But that framing does sound like someone who, given that what he says is fairly incoherent, that he heard some real stuff. It's going to impress a date. He you know heard conversation that. Uh, was just in the sort of nascent, well, let's talk about this. And no, those conversations, the people at Pfizer never want to get out there, of course, because they're terrible. Uh, But given that what he reports on this Project Veritas video doesn't make scientific sense, that does seem like it is a real possibility. A real possibility. Now, there's, of course, more to the story because Pfizer has finally responded. Um, but let's just let's just fill in the monstrous but unlikely possibility. Yeah. Okay. The monstrous but unlikely possibility is that if you changed this virus in the lab by letting selection modify it in monkeys, and then it were released, and you know you knew that that was now going to be uh, spreading, and you had your vaccine ready, that could be. Um, a very effective but absolutely diabolical mechanism for making your products uh, necessary. Yep. Right? Now, I don't really put such a plan past Pfizer. After all, these people have been eager to vaccinate kids who aren't threatened by COVID with a vaccine that does threaten them, that doesn't seem to phase them. So I don't really think there's any moral obstacle to such a plan. But I don't think the people at Pfizer may be a lot of things, but they're not dumb. And the thing is, if Pfizer was caught making new viruses that they would then have to release into the world, then that is going to make these people, you know... um, it's going to put them on a very short list of extremely evil people from history. And they don't have any reason to do it. They have a very good business model. It's immoral, for sure. But it's much safer than running that kind of risk. So I just don't see them pulling that kind of shenanigans because it's not in their interest to do it, right? They've gamed the regulators. They don't have to do this. They've gamed the regulators. They've got the government mandating their product and buying it, right? This is like the you know, this is the this is the next level of organized crime. So that I mean that's but to me that's the crux. It would be extraordinarily evil, obviously, uh, but it would also be unnecessary at right. a business level. 
unnecessary and, and very, very risky. Right. Yeah. Very risky. So I don't think that that's what he's telling us. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't add up. Yeah. I will take a lot of convincing to believe that that's what they're up to. Should we take a quick look at what Pfizer says? Sure. Uh, so you can... You can a video got released on Wednesday, January 25th, the Project Veritas video. <clears throat> and then at 8 p.m. yet last night on Friday, 8 p.m. on Friday, that's sort of classic move there mm-hmm. for a moment of release. Oh, it's called, um, it's called taking out the trash. Are you even plugged in? I, I am, but, you know, the cat's sitting on the cord and all this, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm plugged in. Um. So yeah, it's called taking out the trash. Taking when out the trash. You uh, right. report something uh, on a Friday because people aren't paying attention, and you don't want it to. Uh, you you have to report it, but you don't want people to see it. Yeah. Well, obviously, a lot of people are going to see this, um, but um, no one in the mainstream media, I think. Uh, so anyway, Pfizer. Are they still around? I think so. Hmm. Last I checked. <laughs> Pfizer responds to research claims. This is uh, again Friday, January twenty seventh, twenty twenty three, eight p.m. Allegations have recently been made related to gain-of-function and directed evolution research at Pfizer, and the company would like to set the record straight. Would you? (laughs) I don't think so. Um, But uh, actually, before we go on, um, gain-of-function versus directed evolution, because that's one one of the quotes I didn't transcribe here, didn't read here, is... um, uh, what's his name? Walker says, "Oh, you know, we're, we're doing this," and the anonymous state says, "Oh, that sounds like gain of function." And Walker says, "No, not really. It's directed evolution." Um, so serial passage, serial passaging is directed evolution. It's like, oh, what what kind of selective pressure can we add, or what kinds of hosts can we serially put this? Uh, in this case, virus through, such that we can and, and then select for a particular outcome that we like. Uh, that is. You know, directed evolution isn't, I think, a term of art. But no, I, it is. It oh, is. Okay. So, but, you know, it's not over in, like, basic evolution space, but in, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think I got the distinction but, as these people see it. Yeah, but, but gain of function is basically a GMO, right? Like, when they're saying gain of function, they mean, did we take something from organism A and put it into organism B? I don't think that's the distinction. Okay. I think the distinction is, so... Serial passaging is a mechanism that can be used for gain of function, but it can also be used to do other things. For example, you can attenuate a virus to make a good vaccine. This is one Mm -hmm. of the techniques that they use. And so by serially passaging it, viruses tend to evolve towards uh, lower virulence. And so the point is you can make a benign version of Mm. a pathogen, and that's not gain of function. Okay, so gain of function is an outcome. Um, If you have decided in advance what you want to be gained, regardless of how you get there, it could be gain of function. And serial passaging is is a method. And directed evolution is not a method, but it's closer to, it's, it's, it's more mechanistic. It's not an outcome. I guess if I read them correctly, and yeah. frankly, I don't really want to do their homework for them, where they <laughs> figure out what we, you know, in the skeptical public think yeah. and exploit it. But I believe the idea is serial passaging is a technique. Yeah. Serial passaging can be used to enhance function. It mm-hmm. can be used for gain of function. There are other techniques that can be used for gain of function. And so the point is, by saying um, this is 
directed evolution, but not gain of function. What they're saying, and frankly, I'm not even going to say that this is incorrect. Yep. What they are saying is we are doing something that was, is within bounds because we're not trying to make this virus worse. Our goal was not to enhance, in this case, it's a negatively enhanced you know, virulence or infect, infectiousness uh, of this virus. Therefore, the research can't be accurately classified under gain of function, even though you're using a method that we could have used to do gain of function research. Right. Now, if they are doing what I, at the end of this process, and I, you know, I will say this fits very well with what we discussed uh, in the first part of, of the broadcast today, mm. we are, this is brand new stuff, and we are working our way through it, and we are talking about it over dinner, and we are talking about it with our friends, and we are coming to understand what all of this means. Yeah. doesn't mean that the version that we've got on our minds at the moment is right. right. I think it's getting righter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, uh, the, it may actually be correct that this is not gain-of-function research in the sense that we mean it. I'm not sure that that is a defense in light of what I suspect right most parsimoniously completes the puzzle of what he said they were doing. So let's go back to Pfizer's response yep. here. I, I directed us away because their first sentence, and Zach, you can show my screen again, um, the first sentence of their response from last night is, allegations have recently been made related to gain-of-function and directed evolution research at Pfizer, and the company would like to set the record straight. I'm not going to read the whole thing, although it's not that long, and we'll link to it in the show notes. They say... In the ongoing development of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine, Pfizer has not conducted gain-of-function or directed evolution research. Uh, first point, um, this, 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 unlike the guy on a date, this is written by a team of very careful uh, people, and it's been vetted, you just, uh, of course, by lawyer after lawyer after lawyer, right? So in the ongoing development, Pfizer has not conducted these things. They are not saying that they have never done this kind of kind of research, uh, but in the ongoing development of this particular vaccine, they, and it's not even clear, in the ongoing development, does yeah. that mean it stopped or it's continuing? It's, it's not clear from the, way it's, from the way it's written and I think intentionally vague. Working with, collaborator, co- working with collaborators, we have conducted research where the original SARS-CoV-2 virus has been used to express the spike protein from new variants of concern. Now, when I first read that, I was like, well, why would they even do that? And you had a, a possible answer that makes sense. Like, why, why would they take the original virus and use it to express the spike protein from new variants that are already, that are already out there? Uh, and I think, I think your answer makes good sense. It's at least, a, it at least fits as a reason one might do that. Mm-hmm. If you had data, if you had evidence that had been accumulated from... Uh, original Wuhan strain virus, and you were in the process of investigating updated vaccines that used a new code for the modified spike protein that has come about in one of these variants that you might want on the original background so that effectively in comparing the two things, your uh, data on this new spike, you were not also swapping out changes that had occurred to other parts of the virus um, Which only works because this vaccine is so specific to the spike, right? Right, like that, that's that's the only piece that I heard missing. There, right. right, because like the, the because the virus is only, I mean, because the vaccine's 
so-called vaccines, are only using the spike protein. There you don't is, need the rest of the virus, and indeed the rest of the virus you, might produce noise that could get in the way of the efficacy of the so-called vaccine. Right. It, 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 would, it would be noise that is counterproductive to your understanding what the alteration in the spike sequence uh, had done. Right. Okay. Uh, this work is undertaken. What's a new variant of concern has been identified by public health authorities. This research, research provides a way for us to rapidly assess the ability of an existing vaccine to induce antibodies that neutralize a newly identified variant of concern. We then make this data available through peer-reviewed scientific journals and use it as one of the steps to determine whether a vaccine update is required. That's not the most surprising thing in here, but I thought, do they? I haven't seen these papers. Well, and they and, and, and peer review. Okay, but they must have the fast track through peer review, and I, just, I have not seen these papers. Right. This strikes me as a description of a pharmaceutical utopia in which people are actually <laughs> hard at work. This is how science is done. Right. This is how. But yes. here's the thing: they describe. You know, they we're constantly checking to see whether a update to the uh, the vaccines that we have deployed is necessary. They have delivered exactly one update. Right. <laughs> it's not like. Yeah. So, are they telling us that they didn't spot the need for an earlier update? Is that what they're saying? Because mm. based on what? Based on what? The, well, the, they were working at the speed of science. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Um, so here, then, in the next paragraph, and again, like we could spend hours trying to understand what this crazy little document is, but these two, this one phrase, and then the and then the sentence after it that I've got highlighted here strike me as contradictory-ish. With a naturally evolving virus. Now, are they claiming that SARS-CoV-2 is a naturally evolving virus? Is that is is, is that what we have to accept now, or are they just saying, or is this irrelevant, right? Like, well, it's not even the, parsable because do they mean it evolved naturally, or do they mean it is now evolving naturally? Right, or are they like could they say, well, you, we we just mean anything that has a natural, you know, ancestor as opposed to entirely synthesized? Yeah, I mean, I think right. so. With a naturally evolving virus, it is important to routinely assess the activity of an antiviral, and it wouldn't be with a non. Okay. It, the, the sentence feels like it's doing some important work and we can't figure out what that work is. The next thing I've got highlighted here, in a limited number of cases when a full virus does not contain any known gain-of-function mutations, again, said this one, such virus may be engineered to enable the assessment of antiviral activity in cells. So, a limited number of cases, like this one? You're not going to tell us? Well, wait, 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 um, wait. Gain-of-function mutations. Okay, a lot of us out here, given given the evidence for lab leak and the serial passaging and the ferrets and the humanized mice and the human airway passage tissue, uh, feel pretty confident there are gain-of-function mutations in the SARS-CoV-2 virus, in which case this sentence is irrelevant? Or, like, what job is this sentence doing here? This sentence is highly technical right yes. the bodies are buried right under this sentence yes and you can tell because of the absolutely tortured way in which it's phrased mm -hmm. right i mean for example just notice such virus in a number of cases in a limited number of cases when mm -hmm. how is the sentence different if you take how would it not be a limited number of cases right isn't it inherently a limited number of cases, right? It's like saying, you know, when uh, vaccinology when vaccinology is performed on Earth, 
right? Well, it does not. So let me try to steel man that part. Sure. <laughs> um, sometimes when a full virus is not contained in any known gain of function mutations, we might do some of this uh, fancy engineering behind the scenes, but not always. We've got some subset of viruses that we're doing stuff on. And in some of the cases within that subset, we do this additional thing. So should we but expect a shell game later on yes. where the point is, oh, you didn't ask about those cases. Right. Is that what's going to happen? Well, we didn't say which limited number, like which right. limited, which number, oh, which Tell cases. us which number of case you want to know about and we'll uh, we'll let you see those files. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's something very odd about, about this sentence. <laughs> yes. Um, I do think I understand what they want us to infer. Okay. Which is that when... They know that they have to stay one side of the line about enhancing function. Mm -hmm. And so they're telling us in cases where that's not a risk because the thing that we're using as a source doesn't contain them, we may do this other thing yeah. um, that allows us to, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this is, of course, uh, I've now forgotten who coined this phrase. This is a non-denial denial. Oh. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mm -hmm. a denial mm -hmm. in form, but it doesn't really deny what uh, what Jordan uh, Walker. Walker said. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so anyway, it, it's about something else. It's about establishing a narrative about what they do. The But, I mean, clearly you didn't read the last sentence of their statement. Remind me. Fact-based information rooted in sound science is vitally important to overcoming the COVID-19 pandemic. And Pfizer remains committed to transparency and helping alleviate the devastating burden of this disease. They are increasingly transparent. <laughs> um, I mean, I just feel like what you said is, runs exactly counter to that final sentence well, in, their, in their statement. It's so. not odd that they've contradicted themselves. <laughs> when has that happened in the last three years? Right. Um, all right. So let us talk... I think the I think the right order in order for this to make sense to people is to talk a little bit about the second video that Project Veritas released, mm -hmm. what it might imply, and then for me to tell you at the end of all of this, including Pfizer's non-denial denial, mm -hmm. what it is that I think might explain this. Yep. Okay. Yep. So anyway, we've, that, we've talked about it, right? You're not you're not revealing. I'm not stuff revealing to me. it to you, but. Um, so let's talk about the uh, the second video and the um, yeah. So the second, you so want me to set it up? Sure. I mean, I don't have any any quotes from it. I, I ran out of time. Um, I, I have I have the gist. Presumably, most of our audience will have seen it. And again, I think it's actually fascinating that YouTube struck this video and struck Project Veritas's channel. Yeah, I don't know if they struck the second video. Presumably, but maybe I don't. I don't know. It, it's possible the strike happened before that video was released. So yeah. In any there. case, the question is, you know, this is obviously a matter of global importance. The fact that Pfizer has responded in the tortured uh, way that it has says it's a completely uh, responsible thing to be talking about. What is the meaning of what Pfizer said versus what their executive said? What are we to understand that they are actually doing and how okay should we be with it? Is it within the law? Mm -hmm. Right. Is it tolerable? Um, but anyway, in the second video, what we see is the fact that uh, Jordan Walker has been lured into saying things 
on the record that he did not know were on the record. He thought he was on a date. Um, he says things about his work, and they reveal um, uh, James O'Keefe comes out and replaces the, the CEO and the, the head guy Project at, at Project Veritas comes mm-hmm. in and tries to interview him about what he said. And I think it is fair to say, you tell me if I've got the description uh, off. My language, my notes say uh, he freaks the fuck out. He freaks the fuck out. Yes, yes I was going to find <laughs> euphemisms for freaking the fuck out. But um, that is what uh, what happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, as you would. I think. Well. If you, had just, if you had just said those things while you were trying to get laid, and instead it turns out it was for the whole world. Um, I'm not. Ex- I'm not excusing him, but the fact that he doesn't take it calmly. No, no, not surprising. I'm not surprised <laughs> that his blood pressure goes through the roof. Obviously, he shouldn't have said the things that he said right. for professional reasons. Obviously, the things he is reporting are disturbing in and of themselves, mm-hmm. as he says, as he's telling uh, his date these things. He keeps saying, "You're not going to say anything. Don't tell right? anybody. I promise." Yep. Right. Um, so it's not surprising that he that his mind is going a mile a minute. Um, yeah. However, his reaction is very, very telling, okay. I think. Okay. Um, so we, for, I think we have not mentioned, because so far it has not been relevant, um, he is black. Mm-hmm. It is implied by what we have said that he is gay. Mm-hmm. He is on a gay date. Um, his reaction involves uh, a tremendous amount of drama. And his trying out various different approaches to somehow uh, rewrite the history of what's happened here. And he says... He calls the police. And he says to them... Well, he calls the police. Before the police arrive, he... No, no. He says to them on the phone. Oh, on the phone. We don't see... They never see him in person. I think before he calls the police, he says that he was lying. In fact, it's his first uh, instinct is to say, I was lying. And that doesn't change O'Keefe's approach. Then he says, you're in trouble. You screwed up. Like, right. right. But then, then on the phone with the police, the thing that is maybe the most remarkable is he says, I'm surrounded by five white men. No one has mentioned race at all. Right. It's tr- I mean, we, don't, we can't see all of them, but presumably he's correctly identified their race. It is clearly irrelevant to what has happened. But it is a very interesting phenomenon to have emerged here. Oh, hold on. We haven't, so for, if you haven't seen it, they're in a restaurant. Yeah. And so the restaurant staff are there and um, also uh, Walker somehow blocks the door or locks the door. It's a little bit unclear exactly who did it, what happened. Um, but the restaurant staff want everyone to get out of there because this isn't good for business. And Walker insists that, you know, the five white men of which he is supposedly scared or something, uh, according to what he says to the police, they must stay there. They, it, it's absolutely mandated that they stay there. Right. And in fact, he says that uh, so it's not surrounded. they are making him unsafe. Yeah. He says that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I saw that, I thought, wait a minute, maybe this is a, you know, despite the fact that the biology that he reports doesn't make any sense, maybe this is a big story, but it's not the story that Project Veritas thinks it has. Mm. Maybe this is a story of incompetence and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because the point is, on the one hand, he has said lots of biological things that don't add up, okay? 
And on the other hand, he's in this reasonably high position at Pfizer, responsible in some way for something about mRNA, the exact topic on which he's saying things that don't add up. Um, and then his first instinct upon being caught having said these things about his work environment is this is about race and I feel unsafe, which he's obviously not. His first instinct is I was lying. But that doesn't immediately uh, dissolve the situation. And so he makes it about race. He talks about not feeling safe. He, he goes there. He goes the place that everyone is being encouraged to go now and often will completely shut down a conversation or a situation. Right. So one possibility here is, uh, as those who are in corporate environments presently know, there is all of this uh, energy around ESG, ESG being uh, environment, social, and governance, right? These supposed scores that uh, allow you to evaluate how uh, honorable a corporation is. It's a total nightmare and a debacle, and it's going to make the world much worse, much faster. But nonetheless, that's the claim about what these ESG scores are about. In a world where corporations are minding their ESG scores and uh, in which uh, there are woke mobs everywhere uh, weaponizing HR departments and all of these things, there are going to be lots of people hired who are not qualified to do the thing that, for which they are hired in order to placate the mob with respect to demographics, right? I don't know if this is the moment, but I've got a couple of pieces of evidence that that is exactly going on at Pfizer. Okay. Not with regard to ESG, but with regard to um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So in an undated post on Pfizer's site, it has to be from the second half of 2021 or later, uh, they celebrate their new hire, uh, one Ramses Jean-Louis, who I may be mispronouncing his name. It's their new hire to lead the diversity, equity, and inclusion office. He's the global chief. He says, Jean-Louis says... I feel as if I've joined an organization that has the mentality and philosophy that nothing is impossible. When we apply that same urgency and attention to the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the possibilities are endless, says Jean-Louis, who started the job in July 2021. Equity has been one of our core values for a number of years now. It wasn't reactionary. It wasn't an impulsive response to the racial crisis that climaxed in 2020. Then he talks a little bit about having grown up in Brooklyn, his family's from Haiti, and later in the same post, they quote Pfizer's chairman and CEO, Albert Borla, quote, Pfizer's commitment to equity is all-encompassing and defines who we are as a company. It's about ensuring every person is seen, heard, and cared for, reducing healthcare disparities, and making sure that everyone has an opportunity to express themselves and bring their authentic selves into the workplace. It's also about holding our leaders accountable for living these behaviors every day, said Borla. We are taking a data-driven approach to our equity commitments, and I am thrilled that Ram has come aboard to lead these efforts. A data-driven approach to equity commitments is, is a the horseman of the apocalypse phrase if ever I've heard one. Yeah. So data-driven is itself a disaster, and it, it is a it, for me, it's become a tell of like, if you're a scientist, like, I'm all data-driven, like, I don't think you know what science is. Go back to the drawing board and bring me a hypothesis. But a data-driven approach to our equity commitments they're just counting up demographic markers. Right. Which, That's what that means. They're just counting them up and saying, oh, we don't have enough of this type. Go out and find me some of that type and bring them in. It's insane. Right. So you've got 
evidence from inside of Pfizer that they're counting demographic markers, which implies the existence of a certain number of positions in which the person in that position isn't expected to be competent or doing anything. It you, would be helpful. I guess. But the, the fact is you've then got this guy who doesn't really seem to fit the seriousness of the position that he appears to be in. Mm -hmm. And what he reports when he's talking about his professional life doesn't add up biologically. Right now, what are the chances that his there is something odd about his work history? Right, mm -hmm. this is a urologist who spent one year at a hospital. Right, this is uh, and he was at a consulting firm. Right, and then he comes in through the door of a you know of a consulting firm uh, into Pfizer, and so anyway, who knows what that all means? But it is possible there. But, but we've seen, as we'll have maybe all. But presumably, most of our audience have seen examples um, among you know friends of people we know uh, and and colleagues and acquaintances of people being advanced not because of what they know how to do, but because of what they look like or where they come from, and in fact, they are advanced in you know in lieu of other people who actually have skills being advanced and. And this is, we've been talking about this for a very long time. We've been talking about this for a very long time. Now, the most tragic thing about it is that when you have something like Pfizer counting people of different races as a matter of checking off some boxes, what that does is it invites in people who are using that mechanism to rise to the exclusion of people who might meet those same demographic criteria who are highly qualified. In other words, this is a system that's going to play towards the people who are inclined to game it. And here you have somebody who does seem like they are gaming the system, right? He just doesn't seem scientifically competent. He doesn't seem scientifically competent. He seems, frankly at best, completely amoral. He is reporting with glee on the enhancing of viruses by his company in a way that the public would obviously be upset about if they knew. And he talks about the risks of one of these things getting out, risks that are obviously real and profound. He is not speaking with any seriousness about this. So anyway, this is, this is a lightweight. And this lightweight is in a position that doesn't make sense for a lightweight in the corporation. There, And then his first instinct upon being caught having said things he shouldn't have is to resort to, these are white men, I feel unsafe. So the point is, this does seem like somebody who games systems. And this point, he's trying to use the police to get himself out of having said stuff that was irresponsible. Right, he wants the fact that the police come in and they see white men challenging a black man to to be the sum total of the story. He's trying to create an architecture to escape responsibility for what he said. So, all right, now we've got two questions on the table. It is possible that he is incompetently reporting uh, about biology taking place inside of Pfizer in a way that is informative in some fashion but hard to parse because it doesn't make sense. That's the story that Project Veritas thinks it has. Then there's another possible story in which this is really incompetence rising through all of the mechanisms of society through diversity, equity, and inclusion. And isn't it a little bit ironic that it's even, you know, wrecking corrupt organizations like <laughs> Pfizer, right? That It comes for everyone. Right. That, that, that's comedy right there. Mm -hmm. But here's the question. 
after I keep thinking about everything I heard him say, and then the incredible spectacle of what happens when he's revealed, I think it's both stories. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a lightweight and incompetent person reporting something he did not understand that is of consequence. That's my best guess. And so here I want to fill in what I think is most likely to explain this mysterious experiment in which serial passaging is taking place in monkeys in a way that does not appear to serve Pfizer's interest. Here's the missing element. You vaccinate the monkeys. If you vaccinate the monkeys and then you serially passage the virus through them, you detect the leak in your vaccine and you do see something like the next variant coming, right? In other words, he never says you vaccinate the monkeys and that's why this is such a head scratcher. But if you did vaccinate the monkeys and then you serially passage this vaccine, what you will get is an environment in which Wait, they- you serially, serially passage the virus. The virus through the, mm-hmm. through the monkeys. The virus will find the leak and it will evolve to exploit it. And it will become, the, the vaccine will be less and less effective, which if then- If the vaccine works on the, I mean- it, Oh, the vaccine will work. That's the beauty of the mRNA technology, isn't it? Right? If you can infect the monkeys and you deliver this mRNA so-called vaccine- I guess, vaccine, yeah, if they're infectable with the virus, they're, yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, it's an mRNA transcript. Their ribosomes will transcribe it as well as ours. So, yeah. okay, the vaccine works in the monkeys. You um, serially passage it. The virus defeats the vaccine because, of course, it will, which is mm-hmm. what you and I have been saying forever. Right. Right. This is too narrow a vaccine. So you can predict the vaccine will fail. Mm-hmm. The virus will evolve to overcome it. And what I think Jordan Walker is saying is, and then we will know the next vaccine we need way ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And so the point is we can accelerate our development cycle by exploiting the defects in our own vaccine and delivering supposedly curative vaccines that will also leak. We can just get ahead of this thing, Mm -hmm. right? That would make a lot of sense. And frankly, it sounds a hell of a lot like pharma, right? Pharma is um, rather profoundly indifferent to the side effects of its own treatment. Why? In part because those will require other drugs. And so to the extent that it makes you sicker by giving you something that cures something you've got or helps, you know, the point is that we got a drug for that too. It's, you know, it's, we've got an app for that pharma version. It's interesting. I wonder, um, you know, it would be interesting to see the whole video because obviously Project Veritas has has edited it um, to provide the most interesting parts. But the quote that I have here is him saying the way it would work is we would put this virus in these monkeys and then we successfully cause them to keep infecting each other and we collect serial samples from them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, these monkeys could just be like, we got these monkeys or, or he could be referring to, I've just been talking about these monkeys that we're vaccinating. Yes. Like he, he, he could have actually said that piece and we just don't know. That's true. It'd be interesting. It's, it's at least, you know, if it's not in the video, it doesn't tell us anything. Yeah. If it is in the video, it helps us test this hypothesis that yeah. that's actually what he's um, referring to. I did want to point out a couple things, Yeah. right? So we've got a hypothesis on the table about what he might actually have meant that he's misreported this and that the reason it doesn't make any sense is because he forgot an element or mm-hmm. didn't understand that that element was required. He yep. just knew that there was some plan to get ahead business-wise by creating variants that absent this wouldn't help. Yep. You will create variants maybe, but they won't be useful. In this case, they'll be absolutely useful because Basically, you're using the virus to find your leak. 
right? How will a virus respond when there's when the when the immunity is non-sterilizing? Okay, a couple things. One, if this is what Pfizer is doing, then it validates the idea which was central to the contentious battles we were in uh, when the variants problem first emerged about whether or not a trial was enough to cause the emergence of variants, right? Because the challenge that many people offered to us was that it can't be that the vaccines, the so-called vaccines, are triggering the emergence of variants because the variants show up too early. The variants, however, show up in places where trials were held. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, well, Quickly. look, if you can do this in a, you know, how many monkeys do they have? Yeah. Let's say it's a thousand. That'd be a lot of monkeys, right? Um, but, you know, if a trial on a small number of monkeys is enough to give them information on variants, then the point is, well, it doesn't take very many. So that would sound like a trial. So anyway, yep. that's yep. one connection here. The other one is strange. Do you remember, you and I never delved very deeply because it's not our area of specialty. You know, you and I are not gene jocks. Um, but you remember Chris Martinson went after the question of why is Omicron so weird? Mm-hmm. That question has never been answered. Yeah. Okay. Omicron. It's, 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 it seems novel. Not only novel, mm-hmm. it seems to be, it seems that it was frozen in time that it is not descended from anything that was circulating at the time that it emerged. Right. Right? Yep, that's right. And the other thing that was weird about it was that it had an incredible ratio of non-synonymous mutations to synonymous mutations. Right? Mm-hmm. So something had, it was like a hundred times the I other variants. by non-synonymous mutations to synonymous mutations. Um, the mutations that were recorded in this new... Mm-hmm. creature, Omicron, uh, were heavily biased in the direction of mutations that actually changed the protein sequence. Ah. Oh, right. okay. So with, with the, the ratio of mutations within Omicron was biased. Okay. That, okay. By a hundred times the others. So it and was, what's the, I can't, I'm trying to think of like, what the, what's the math on the usual ratio? The usual ratio in the other variants was less than 1%. Okay. And it was like, in Omicron. So what does that even mean? What is Omicron? Where did it come from? And, you know, there are various possibilities, right? You and I talked about the possibility that it was a white hat attempt to vaccinate the world to shut down the pandemic, that somebody tried to take this out of the hands of the incompetent people who had driven it in the first place. Mm -hmm. That was one possibility. Another possibility um, was that... Um, it's possible it was circulating in some way that we couldn't see it, though that would be very weird given how contagious the thing was, right? Mm-hmm. It's possible that we just didn't detect it because it was far enough off that the PCR test didn't uh, register it. Mm-hmm. Um, but another possibility is that somebody was playing games like maybe Jordan Walker is telling us we're going on at Pfizer and they lost their vaccine. Mm-hmm. I mean, they lost their their test environment, right? right? So they lost it into the world. They lost it into mm-hmm. the world. Which, if you think about it, if his experiment, that one he's describing, is just fixed, so it makes sense in the way I'm suggesting it would have to be, mm-hmm. right? If they vaccinated the monkeys, and then they serially passaged this thing, right? 
It's actually very similar to the attenuation program that you would use to generate a real vaccine. If you weren't so hell-bent on doing this with mRNA, right, you would maybe serially passage your virus to get a virus that wasn't so virulent, Yep. right? And this could be an intermediate, right, that got out. They were planning to release a booster, an mRNA booster, and maybe... I don't know. So anyway, I don't want to go too far down that road. I'm not saying I think this happened. I'm saying it belongs on the list of possibilities because the anomalies of Omicron are profound. They have never been explained. The experiment that seems to be described by Jordan Walker doesn't make sense in and of itself, but there might be an experiment that he heard about and didn't completely understand that would make sense. Or didn't completely describe. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I... It's certainly a fascinating story. Yeah, and it, and it brings together just to just to wrap it up. It brings together these you know these these two domains about which we spend a lot of time talking, right? The the corruption and decay of actual science, uh, and you know science ish domains, which includes like public health and. Um, and public health organizations like the WHO and the CDC, federal granting agencies like NSF and NIH, uh, and pharma, right? Um, such that m- so much of the science being done, and of course in academia as well, uh, is just either inexplicably badly designed such that it could not possibly reveal uh, what it's supposed to reveal, or the people doing it are so misunderstanding what complex systems are and how many things that they are messing with by changing, they're, they're claiming one variable and often they're be changing lots of them, uh, that there's no, there's no chance of success. So we've got like that space, which um, many people who can see the other space, the, the risks of DEI, of, of, woke, of the woke ideology uh, supplanting merit-based advancement and understanding in the world. Many people who can see that other thing, the, the, the woke ideology thing, have not been willing to say, maybe, maybe it's going to affect science and also what happens if the two of them come together. And it's and and you said this I don't know ten fifteen minutes ago but like this this is a story where they appear to come together. You've got you know the failure of science ish domains as a result of greed and corruption and careerism and all of these things that we talk about all the time, with the you know ascent of it appears someone and presumably some ones lots of some ones uh, through the ranks making decisions that affect the entire planet who don't appear to have the skills, the understanding necessary to even be able to describe it to a layperson. How is it that those are the people who are making decisions on behalf of all of us? And what happens when that process, you know, as you and I have been warning, interrupts all functional systems? Yeah. Right? You know, we are, we are playing with the fate of the world here, and the bridges don't fall down right away, the airplanes don't fall out of the sky right away, but we're, we're working on legacy competence, and we are eroding the competence of the people who are actually needing to manage the new stuff as it arises. And, um, it, you know, disaster, it's not even coming. It's here. Bigger yeah. and bigger disasters are, are going to happen um, as a result of this. Actually, there's, there's one more thing that maybe in this, I mean, this does come sort of full circle to what we were talking about with regard to, to Scott Adams and, like, you know, how, how do you do it? Like, how, how do you end up predicting correctly time and time again. 
And one other thing that is true is that we have, because of, because of the training that we had in what is broadly referred to as skin out biology, so there's lots of ways to split up sort of the study of life on Earth, uh, but one of them is sort of is it at the level of smaller than an organism, skin in biology, or at the level of an organism or larger skin out biology. And we used to joke with our other skin out biology friends, our other evolutionary biology friends, um, but not without truth to it. Uh, that the skin and biologists liked to talk about, well, yeah, I work on like the molecular pathways of such and such in Mongolian gerbils. And then they'd show a picture of Mongolian gerbil because everyone loves to see a cute and fuzzy mammal, right? And, you know, the joke was, yeah, but if they literally stumbled across a Mongolian gerbil in the street, they wouldn't know it, right? Like they wouldn't know it if it, if it dropped on their head and be like, oh my God, it's a terrible thing. Like they wouldn't know it was their supposed study animal. And this is about the, the reductionism and the you know, data-drivenness and the tech-happy approach to science that so many people are engaging in now because uh, you know, this isn't relevant so much to, to the question of SARS-CoV-2 and virus and, and vaccine development, but if you can go outside and see the thing uh, in, its, you know, in its habitat, um, that is going to give you a lot more insight than sitting around thinking about it from your armchair, right? And whenever you can see the thing that you are supposedly studying in the context in which it evolved, you are going to gain more insight and you are going to be much less likely to engage in these tech-heavy, um, overly simplistic, overly reductionist solutions. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, uh, you at least need to know what your creature, what problem your creature is a solution to right before you're going to be really good at thinking about it yes um i did want to add one other thing though All right. um, when i first as i alluded at the beginning of this discussion when i first ran into this story i was really alarmed and i was really alarmed because of the nonsense biology that jordan walker was reporting and that many dissident voices who are have been tremendously important in um pursuing the various anomalies that have happened during the pandemic uh, weren't talking about the absurdity of the biology that was being described. My guess, and so I, I did worry that this could be a trap, that mm -hmm. there's so many hundreds of billions of dollars at stake um, that a sophisticated trap that caused all of the people who have successfully, you know, survived the onslaught of slanders in order to report to the world what is actually going on and translate it into English so people could understand what, what was happening, that this was a great danger. If he was reporting gobbledygook from inside of Pfizer and people were embracing it too easily without thinking about the biology, that's obviously a big hazard. And so there's a question about whether this is even real or whether somebody had um, fed Project Veritas nonsense, which that's never a zero possibility in an environment that's this charged on which so much rests. I am much less concerned about that now, having seen both the reaction of Jordan Walker to being caught, right? I think that was authentic. It looked authentic. Mm -hmm. And it does hint at this larger story. And there is a relatively small alteration to what he said that then makes the rest of it sensible enough, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the parsimony has been restored to this. And I'm less concerned that it could be uh, some kind of um, trap 
But I will say that does then cause me to want to give the other dissidents uh, a caution. Because what I think they must have done is in their minds connected dots that hadn't been connected in the video, right? They assumed an experiment that would make sense in place of the experiment that was described that wouldn't make sense, mm -hmm. right? And so that does create a vulnerability. I think, I, I think for sure on my first watch, that's what I did. Yes. So um, I, I think it's dangerous, right? It does open the possibility of somebody uh, mm -hmm. ensnaring the uh the world of skeptics well and i mean and, and you know there's there's all these terms that may be terms of art but are used differently by different people so you know even just the ones we talked about here gain of function serial passaging uh directed evolution yeah. right um you know the the distinction there there is i think we arrived at a relatively clear taxonomy of distinction between these things but uh it's not at all clear to me that that is either those are either stable definitions or the ones that are being used by uh people in you know meetings at Pfizer it does make me want to go back to Rand Paul's interaction with Tony Fauci where Tony oh, Fauci, a function. Senator, <laughs> uh, you know, where he's saying uh, that we do not do gain of function research. And it's yeah. pretty obvious that any normal parsing of the language uh, would tell you that they do. It's, it's Clintonian, right? I mean, it's, it, 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 it depends on what the definition of is is. We're back there. We are back there. On yeah. the other hand, the point is, okay, give me all of the definitions in this quadrant of the glossary so we can talk <laughs> about what you are and aren't doing and why you feel entitled. Right. So anyway, um, all of this is to say, I think, um, I think this isn't a trap. That's not a zero possibility, sure. but it's a lower possibility than I initially feared, but it does suggest that we should all be more careful and we should all be talking to each other more and sooner, right? Leaping to conclusions about what's being described, you know, before we've had a chance to discuss it is a mistake. And it's one that's induced by, um, by social media. Mm -hmm. Because the that idea is, sense. oh my God, you know, Project Veritas has just released this thing. I'm going to be expected to say something on it. And so anyway, that pressure to talk is making people uncareful. And uh, that's, um, that's a problem. All right. I think we're done. I think so, too. All right. Uh, so we are going to be back here again next week, and we're going to be back here again in 15 minutes as well to answer your questions. You can ask them at darkhorsesubmissions.com. And consider joining us tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific. We're doing our two-hour private Q&A two hours earlier than we usually do this month. Uh, that'll be tomorrow. The questions are in. They're great. Uh, that's a small enough group that we are able to interact with the chat. Uh, and uh, and then we do leave that up also for um, people on, on my Patreon. Uh, we, yeah, lots more to say always, but uh, we are very, very glad to have you, our audience. We get great communications and sometimes gifts from, from, from all of you. In fact, there's a book right there that came in for you. Yeah, I noticed um, that. Beautiful. And uh, until we see you next. Be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>